Second Corinthians chapter four. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18, the verses that we will be focusing our thoughts on this morning. Let us give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I submit to you this morning that we are living in the age of the Great Depression. And I'm not referring to the condition of the stock market or the state of our national economy. I'm referring to the condition of the soul and spirit of our society. Depression, discouragement, despair are rampant. The evidence is abundant. Consider the increase in suicide, especially among young people. According to the 2005 data, suicides in the United States outnumber homicides by nearly two to one and ranks as the 11th leading cause of death in this country. They tell us there are approximately 750,000 suicide attempts each year. And on the average, a young person ages 15 to 24 dies by suicide every two hours and 12 minutes. Or consider the skyrocketing use of drugs and alcohol. Alcohol and drug abuse cost our society an estimated $86.1 billion every year. From direct costs and losses in productivity related to crime, social welfare expenditures, motor vehicle crashes, etc. $86.1 billion it costs us every year. I was telling my Measure of Man class uh, the other night, when I was in high school in the 50s, in the late 50s, I still remember when we heard somebody was talking and said that some student in our school had taken drugs. Everybody's like, what's that? Drugs? You know, isn't that something you buy at the pharmacy? You know, if you're sick, drugs? Really? We didn't know what that was. Consider where we are 50 years later and all that has happened in our culture. Or consider the explosive growth in the number of psychologists and psychiatrists. Now, I'm not saying anything against them. They are needed. But consider in our culture, although the exact number of practicing clinical psychologists is unknown, it is estimated that between 1974 and 1990, the number in the United States grew from 20,000 to 63,000. And since 1970, psychiatry has grown 86.7% while child psychiatry has grown 194%. The World Health Organization has named depression the second most common cause of disability worldwide after cardiovascular disease, and it is expected to become number one in the next 10 years. Depression. And I would remind you that this mood of depression and despair is not just evident among, among non-Christians. It is increasingly evident among Christians as well. 
Last year, it was about a year ago, Christianity Today ran an article entitled The Depression Epidemic. How big is the problem? I quote from that article. Studies of religious groups from Orthodox Jews to Evangelical Christians reveal no evidence that the frequency of depression varies across religious groups or between those who attend religious services and those who do not. So, in a typical congregation of 200 adults, 50 attendees will experience depression at some point, and at least 30 are currently taking antidepressants. There is a legend that the devil once advertised his tools for sale at public auction. When the prospective buyers assembled, there was one very oddly shaped tool that was labeled not for sale. Asked to explain why this was, the devil answered, I can spare my other tools, but I cannot spare this one. It is the most useful implement that I have. It is called discouragement. And with it, I can work my way into hearts otherwise inaccessible. When I get this tool into a man's heart, the way is open to plan anything there that I may desire. You know, if there ever was a Christian who had reason to be discouraged and even depressed, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet in our text today, you'll notice that he says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. In other words, he is saying we are not Uh, discouraged we are not despondent we are not depressed we do not lose heart well that statement is rather amazing when you hear him mention some of the things that he was facing Uh, look back in that chapter just a little earlier look at verse 8 here's what he was facing we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed Did you get it? He said, we're pressed on every side. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are punched down. We are struck down. My friend, do you ever feel pressed? Do you ever feel perplexed? Do you ever feel punched down? And so the question here this morning is, what was Paul's secret for not giving in to depression and discouragement in spite of the circumstances? How could he keep going? in the midst of such difficult circumstances that he was facing. Well, I believe he gives us the key in verses 16 to 18, the verses that we read. And I believe that the secret was that he knew how to live with an eternal perspective. He had an eternal perspective. And in these three brief verses, I believe he gives us what I'm calling three important focuses that are involved. Now I looked it up and the plural of, fo- of focus is either foci or focuses. I, I feel more comfortable with focuses if you don't mind. Uh, I haven't heard the word foci used too much. But he gives us what I'm calling three important focuses that are involved in having eternal perspective. In other words, if you and I are going to live with an eternal perspective, there are three important focuses that we need to keep in mind. And I will guarantee you that anyone who will live with these focuses, we'll have a fulfilling and purposeful and God-glorifying life and we'll defeat discouragement and depression. Notice with me in these verses, first of all, he says in order to live with an eternal perspective, we must focus on the inward man rather than on the outward man. Did you notice in verse 16, he says, we do not lose heart. 
But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. In other words, Paul says he was much more concerned about the condition of his inner man, that is his soul and spirit, than he was about the condition of his outer man, which of course was his body. Now, this is extremely difficult in a society that idolizes physical beauty and fitness. I talked about this in a message last year that we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on physical fitness every year. Magazine racks are filled with magazines that emphasize outward appearance. In fact, many years ago, Dr. James Dobson, in one of the first books he ever wrote, was entitled Hide or Seek. I required it for all my teachers at our MK school. They were all required to read that book. In that book, he pointed out that the gold coin of human value, our human worth in America, American culture is outward appearance, beauty. That's the gold coin of human worth. He said, without question, the most highly valued attribute in our culture and in most others is physical attractiveness. That's the gold coin. And because of our culture's values, we need to be constantly reminded that God's gold coin of human value is not outward beauty. It is not outward appearance. It is inward beauty. Listen, there is no such thing as God's universal ideal in outward appearance. In spite of the Miss America, Miss Universe, etc. pageants, these are absurd events and do great damage to the values of our culture. They are absurd. God does have a universal ideal in regards to inward beauty, inward character qualities. God has a universal ideal. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, listen, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. What we look at is the outward appearance. But it says man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God looks at our hearts. That's what he sees. You see, God is looking for the character of Jesus Christ to be reproduced in us by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 reminds us that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's God's ideal. And over and over, the Bible affirms this important truth concerning our inner man. For instance, 1 Timothy 4, 8. Bodily training is of some value. Yes, we should exercise. We should try to stay in good physical condition. But it says godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Are we as much concerned about our inner condition as we are about our outward condition? Listen to what Peter said. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, and fine clothes. Now, he's not saying it's wrong to wear jewelry. He's not saying it's wrong to make yourself attractive. He's not saying that. But he says the emphasis, he says, listen, instead, it should be that of your inner self, an unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. God is concerned about your inner beauty. And this passage, of course, is written primarily to the women. He says, for this way, the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They made themselves beautiful by being inwardly beautiful. So as followers of Christ, 
Our happiness should not be dependent on our outward beauty or appearance, but on our ability to experience the character of Christ. In our hard attitudes, Paul says here in verse 16, we are to be, you notice what he says there? We are to be renewed. The inner man is being renewed or transformed day by day into the likeness of Christ. In fact, just look back one chapter to verse 18. And here he talks about the same idea in in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. We, he said, are being transformed every day. We should be in a process of transformation. What does it matter if the outward man is perishing as long as the inward man has experienced daily spiritual renewal? You know, no matter how much we hate to admit it, our outer man is decaying. Or wasting away, as it says there in 3.18. And, you know, we can do our best to camouflage it. But I don't know if you noticed, every year it gets more difficult. Gets more difficult, you know. A couple of years ago, Shirley and I attended our 45th class reunion at Moody Bible Institute. Boy, it was amazing how our classmates had decayed. You know, I don't know what happened to them. Uh, But the exciting thing was to hear them tell their story of how... God had used them, how they had grown in the Lord over the 45 years since we had been together as students because their inner man was being renewed day by day. And that was the most important thing. You notice the imagery that God uses or Paul uses to refer to our bodies. Look at verse seven in this chapter four. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The, the, the rendering, some of them have it as jars of clay. He said, we have this treasure. That is the gospel. We have it in an earthen vessel. These are jars of clay. That's what we live in. And then you'll notice over in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, notice what he says about our bodies. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. He says, he calls our body a tent. You know, a tent is temporary. Some of the folks have been to Haiti, and they've seen thousands of tents that people are living in paul says our body is like a tent it's temporary it's a flimsy abode it's frail it's vulnerable it's wasting away warren wiersbe points out he says paul was not suggesting that the body's not important we don't believe in a dualism the body is important or that we should ignore its warnings and needs since our bodies are the temples of god we must care for them but we cannot control their natural deterioration no matter what we do they are wasting away, and we cannot stop it. And, you know, if, if we are going to live with an eternal perspective, we must put our primary focus on the condition of our inward man, not the outward. My friend, my Christian friend, how much time and energy do you spend on your outward appearance as compared to the time and concern you have for your daily spiritual growth in the things of the Lord? How much concern do I have about how am I growing day by day? How am I being transformed day by day into the image of Christ? That's the first focus Paul says we must have if we're going to have an eternal perspective. But notice the second focus. Paul points out in verse 17 that we must focus our, on our future glory instead of our present troubles. Notice verse 17. He says, we do not lose heart. 
For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, Paul, that's easy for you to say. Because you don't know the afflictions and problems I've had over the years. You don't know the suffering that I'm going through. Well, consider for a moment what Paul had experienced. Look over in chapter 6. Just turn over one chapter to verse 4. Paul gives us a little idea of what he had been through. He says, In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonment, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. Those are just some of the things that Paul had been through. And then, I won't turn you to it, but later in chapter 11, listen to what he says about some of his experiences. This is in his missionary ministry. Beaten five times, or beaten times without number. Can't remember how many times I was beat. Often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews, 39 lashes. He said, I do remember that. How many times? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You know, I don't hear any of the prosperity preachers preach from these passages. You know, I just don't know. They miss these. You know, God wants us to be happy and blessed. This is the Apostle Paul. This is just some of the suffering and that he had gone through. But notice here in verse 17, Paul says that actually our affliction, our troubles, our sufferings, he says, are what are producing the glory. In other words, the greater the difficulties here, the greater the glory will be there. The more I would suffer for the cause of Christ here, the greater the glory will be there. And when he says his afflictions are light, he does not mean they're easy or painless. He means that compared to what is coming, they are like nothing. Compared to the weight of glory coming, they're like feathers on a scale is what he is saying. He says in Romans 8, listen, Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worthy to be compared, he says, to the glory that's going to come. You see that contrast in verse 17? Light afflictions eternal weight of glory momentary (laughs) 60 years 70 years maybe 80 years maybe into the 90 years compared to endless billions and billions and billions of years he said no comparison no comparison johnny erickson tata most of you are aware of johnny She's been a paraplegic. It must be 40 years or something like that now. She's not been able to move from the shoulders down. I've heard her talk about heaven a lot. When you're in that condition, you think a lot about heaven. Those of us who are healthy don't think a whole lot about heaven. Listen to what she says about that eternal weight of glory. I still can hardly believe it. I with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body light bright and clothed in righteousness powerful and dazzling can you imagine the hope that gives someone 
spinal cord injured like me or someone who has cerebral palsy or brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And so we need to remember, like Johnny does, that the troubles here are momentary, but the glory will be eternal. You know, the Apostle Peter lived with that perspective. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, a little while, he said, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. It's a little while, he said, remember that. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, just remember, your sufferings are a little while. And then he says this in first Peter chapter four, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, listen, he says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, keep in mind eternity keep it in mind he said in all your suffering on the scale of eternity the glory far outweighs the trials paul was able to focus on the future glory instead of the present troubles and we need to remember to do the same when trials troubles sufferings persecutions come into our life you know the blind hymn writer fanny crosby who was blinded a few years a few days after she was born never never really had vision and wrote eight thousand hymns 8,000 hymns. And when she wrote lines like his glory, we shall see. And lines like when our eyes behold the city, her thoughts were all the more significant because her eyes had never seen anything. And she would tell people not to feel sorry for her. She'd tell them, don't feel sorry for me. She says, because the first face I will ever see will be the Lord Jesus Christ. First face that I will ever see. Don't feel sorry for me. And uh, her sight was forever healed in 1915 when she died and stepped into eternity. Her sight was forever healed. You know, my friend, you may find yourself in the midst of very difficult trials, testings, and sufferings. And the day may come, it may soon come, in this country, when we will have the opportunity to actually suffer which we've never had. Our brethren all around the world are suffering and dying. You can read about it every day. And the day may soon come in this country where we will have the opportunity as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer for the sake of his name. And if and when it comes, we will need to keep our eyes on eternity. Keep our eyes on eternity. You know what it says in First Corinthians chapter 2? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man has ever imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It will be, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we have to keep our focus on that, on eternity in the midst of suffering. But notice the third focus that Paul mentions here in verse 18. 
He says, we do not lose heart because we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We need to burn this verse into our hearts and minds. The things that are seen are temporary. The things that are not seen are eternal. It's very difficult to do this in a materialistic world in which we live. It's so hard to remember that everything we see with the physical eye is only temporary. And only that which we see with the eyes of faith is eternal. The world says all that is real and all that is important is what you can see and touch and weigh. But God's word says that everything you can touch, everything you can hold will crumble and everything you see will someday pass away. Some of you may remember the old uh, advertising mantra that said you only go around once. So you got to get all the what? Gusto you can get. You only go around once. So, you know, really live it up. Get everything you can get. Or the bumper sticker, you know, that says the one who dies with the most toys wins. You know what God's word says? Do not love this world. Now, he's not talking about this globe, this beautiful globe that we live on, his creation. He's not talking about that. He says, do not love the world, nor the things it offers to you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, the pursuit of things, and pride in our achievements and our possessions. He says, these are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But everyone, anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. You know, we must never forget that everything we see in this world is temporary and fading away. So how does a Christian see things that cannot be seen with a physical eye? We are supposed to look at the unseen things. How do we do that? We do it through the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, or the assurance about things we cannot see. With the physical eyes, we can't see them. But they're real. They're real. And we see them with the eyes of faith. Isn't that what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 about all those saints, the heroes of faith? In that, in that chapter, they achieved what they did because it says they saw the invisible. They saw the invisible with the eyes of faith. For instance, listen what it says in Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, it probably had never rained. And he was warned to build an ark. It says by faith in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. Hebrews eleven thirteen. all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them by the eyes of faith and welcomed them from a distance. They didn't even receive those things in this life, but they saw them and they were real. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward with the eyes of faith. He lived in Egypt, the greatest country at that time. He could have had everything that he wanted, 
but he looked with eyes of faith. He could have had all the world offered, but it says in Hebrews 11, by faith, he left Egypt. Now listen, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw him. He saw him with the eyes of faith. That's why he left Egypt. One Bible commentator points out the things of this world seem so real because we can see them and feel them, but they're all temporal and destined to pass away. Only the eternal things of the spiritual life will last. Again, we must not press the truth into extreme extremes and think that the material and spiritual oppose each other. When we use the material in God's will, he transforms it into the spiritual, and this becomes a part of our treasure in heaven. We value the material because it can be used to promote the spiritual and, for, and not for what it is in itself. In other words, God gives us material things and to be used for eternal purposes. It was Jim Elliott, one who was martyred on the beaches in Ecuador when he was seeking to reach an unreached people group. It was Jim Elliott who said when he was a student at, student at Wheaton College, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep all the visible things in this world, to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool. And Hebrews eleven thirteen says, They all died in faith, not having received these things, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. But it says, They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Those people back there, they lived with their eyes fixed on eternity. And that controlled everything that they did. And Paul says right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he makes the statement that we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Listen to Colossians 3. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things here on the earth. Let me ask you frankly, my friend, what things occupy your mind the most? As I asked myself as I studied this passage, what things occupy my mind the most? Are they things that are above? Are they things here on this earth? Things I can see and touch, things I can possess, things I can have. You know, sometimes people talk about the danger. I've heard the statement that being so heavenly minded uh, that you're no earthly good. <laughs> I don't think that's the problem that most of us have to be worried about. It's much more likely that we need to be concerned about being so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. That is, we are of no use to the Lord here on this earth. So God's words reminds us that as believers, we need to live our lives with our eyes fixed primarily on what is not seen. In fact, in Hebrews 12, it says we are to what? Fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's not a casual glance. It's the idea of picking up a telescope and trying to bring something far away into view and into focus. It suggests intense examination, a steady gaze. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. What do you spend most of your time looking at? All material things of this world, which will someday pass away, or at the Lord Jesus and things of eternity. Are you completely taken up with the things that are temporal, power, position, possessions, pleasures? No time for prayer, no time for reading God's word, no time for serving the Lord. How much time do you spend in an average week looking at Jesus? See, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we stay focused. We stay on course. We do not wander to the left or the right. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus He's the center of our affections, our attention, our motivation. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, 
our priority, priorities fall into the proper order. And we know who holds the future. We know what our future is in heaven. No matter what we face in this life, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toil of the way. This veil of tears is but the pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to a world of bliss. And after death, what cometh? What wonder world will open upon our astonished sight? He says, meditate much on heaven. My friend, if you live your life with your focus on the outward man and on the present troubles and difficulties and on the material things of this world, you will eventually lose heart. You will find life empty and depressing as you sense increasingly the physical limitations and weaknesses of your body. As you find yourself surrounded by troubles and problems that will inevitably come in this life. And as you see your material possessions begin to fade away, or you see your your retirement savings decimated, you will become discouraged and despair. But as believers, we must steadfastly resist and reject the world's perspective, goals, and values. We must learn to live with an eternal perspective. The same eternal perspective the Apostle Paul had We do that by focusing on the inward man rather than on the outward man, the eternal glory rather than the present suffering and the things not seen rather than the the seen. We do it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Someone has said, reminding and preaching to ourselves every day the beauty and power of what Christ accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection is what keeps our focus on him. And so the Lord, I believe, gave us the Lord's table to help us keep our eyes on him and fix our eyes on him. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, it's so easy to get our eyes on everything else and drift away. But the Lord's table, I think, is a point to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we want to turn our eyes from the seen to the unseen. We're going to ask the Lord to open our eyes of faith. So that we can see Jesus. We want to tell him that we love him. And uh, let's, I'm going to ask you to stand. This is our prayer. That the Lord would open our eyes because we want to see Jesus. All right.
Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? You recall that uh, Thomas was the one who said, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and put my fingers into the nail prints, I won't believe. And when Jesus appeared to him a few days later and said, Thomas, put your hands, put your fingers in the nail prints, Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God. You remember what Jesus said to him? Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who, having not seen, believe. You know, we say in this world, believing or, or seeing is believing. Show me and I'll believe. No, the Bible says believing is seeing. When you believe with the eyes of faith, then you see Jesus. Have you ever seen Jesus, my friend? Have you reached out to him in faith? Put your trust in him as your Lord and Savior, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Can you say that to Jesus this morning? My Lord and my God. 